Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor Margaret Thomas of Boston College about her book, 50 Key Thinkers on Language and Linguistics. The book summarizes the life and work of some of the most influential people in the history of the language sciences across a wide range of times and places, from the India of 500 BCE, via 15th century Korea, to 20th century America. In this interview, we discuss some of the figures met along the way, and some of the difficulties and opportunities associated with compiling a volume of this kind. Today I'm talking to Professor Margaret Thomas of Boston College about her book, 50 Key Thinkers on Language and Linguistics. Margaret, how did this book come about? Well, uh, I had just finished uh, writing another book for Rutledge on the history of ideas about second language acquisition. And in the course of writing that book, I uh, it took a long time because I stopped a lot to get to read more about, uh, you know, sort of key figures who appeared in that book. Uh, so it seemed like a natural thing to go back to the, all the loose ends that I had dug up when I was writing that other book to go back and pick those up and try to write about the things that I didn't uh, learn in writing the first book. In the uh, introduction to this book, you compare the uh, process of compiling this list of thinkers very vividly with the uh, process of drawing up the guest list for a party. <laughs> Could you tell us about that process? Yeah, I, maybe that was a kind of act of desperation. But once it uh, once I landed on that kind of stance towards the project overall, it really liberated me to write freely uh, and uh, kind of with a kind of uh, joy uh, that was fun for me. Um, Because one of the key, I mean, this is a, uh, the structure of the book is it's a collection of short intellectual autobiographies of people who have made a big difference in in the study of language. And uh, sort of one one of the very first problems you have to confront in writing a book like that is, like, who to include and who to exclude. It's really an intractable problem. I took a a number of different approaches to it. I asked all my friends. I pooled other my colleagues. I had a lot of interesting conversations with people about it. I looked at how other people had dealt with the issue of deciding who has really made a difference in the history of linguistics. And I, I, I couldn't really satisfy myself with that because it seemed that all of those decisions were sort of purely locally driven, depending on the interests of the author and the presumed readership. Uh, the, a lot of books shied away from that and instead looked at uh, key, sort of key thinkers within particular historical or geographical domains. And I felt uh, very um, stymied as to how to make a decision. It was easy to pick out the first maybe five or six people who would have to be included in a book surveying uh, who was an important figure in the study of language. But after that, there was this huge crowd of people who could be included or could not be included. And I, I didn't really know how to go forward. And then it occurred to me, um, because I teach graduate students here at Boston College, that I was somewhat in the position of... Um, uh, like I was uh, in a car driving a bunch of my graduate students off to a party to introduce them to linguistics. And before you do that, it's a good idea before you go to a party to know something about who else is going to be there. And so I began to imagine myself talking to the graduate students about who they were going to meet at this party firsthand. And that liberated me uh, to think 
about who I'd like to introduce my graduate students to, uh, they being sort of novices in the field of uh, linguistics, uh, and what they should know about the people before they actually met them. Uh, and so I started, I started writing from that basis. One thing that struck me, um, although there's an enormously wide geographical and temporal spread of uh, thinkers represented in your book, um, there seems to be quite a concentration around the late 19th, early 20th century. Was that a period you're particularly drawn to as focal in the study of language? It is really an important period. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people, when they start to read it, expect to see more representation in that period. And so I felt that uh, sort of pulling the horizons backwards from that time uh, was an important sort of task for the book as well. But yes, a lot of things really happened uh, during that period that have really affected uh, how language is studied now. By the same token, there are relatively few, uh, if you like, post-Chomskyan names, with the, with the key exception of Jim McCauley. Was that because the impact of recent developments is relatively hard to gauge, or do you think it reflects a sort of balkanization of the field to some extent? I think it's probably more the former than the latter, because uh, with uh, it, it is a really different, um, I found myself in a very different position reviewing the lives and accomplishments of people born, say, from 1920 onwards, because they're their longevity in the field hasn't been tested. Uh, and it's really, it's hard to, to discern. In the same way that a recent friend uh, has a different status in your life than someone who you've known for a really long time. Um, and there are a lot of, there's a large field of possible candidates for inclusion uh, born in the 20th century. Uh, and it's just, a, it's harder to judge who's going to really make a difference and who's really going to last. Yes, there's sometimes that sense, isn't there, when you're, when looking at recent contributors to any field, that that one is perhaps a little reluctant uh, to place them in that pantheon in case one looks a little short-sighted or a little too focused on one's own time. Do you feel that way? Yes, and in fact, um, a lot of uh, um, in a lot of cases, people are surprised that there isn't much more coverage of the late 20th century in this book. Because that's what everyone is, you know, that's what the general focus in linguistics is. Um, I did a, let me tell you about a study I did in uh, 2007 and 2008 when I was starting to write the book in earnest. Um, I, I, I put up on the web uh, a survey directed at graduate students and undergraduates in linguistics about trying to find out what they already knew about the history of linguistics. And the results really surprised me. Um, about 126 people were kind enough to answer my survey, uh, and I answered. I asked them for some questions about what they knew about the history of linguistics uh, and how they felt about it, how they've been trained in it, and then I asked them to give me feedback about individual figures and which ones they recognized. Uh, one of the things I found in the survey uh, is that there's uh, a considerable amount of kind of curiosity, sort of unmet curiosity about the history of linguistics. Yeah, so for example, 35% of the people who took this survey uh, uh, represented themselves as curious but uninformed about the history of linguistics. About 30% said that they felt that the history of linguistics was useful but not really substantive in their work. Uh, and 20, only about 25% felt that the history of their discipline was really an essential skill that they needed to uh, control. Uh, and 10% denied that the history of linguistics had any influence on their study of language. Um, and so that, that uh, represented to me that about a third 
a third each, people were very eager, neutral, and resistant to knowing something about the history of linguistics. The the uh, content of, I asked them then questions about the course content uh, in classes that they had taken, uh, and about 15% of them said that there was no historical content to what they were studying. About half said that there were occasional references to earlier historical facts or figures or ideas in classes that they had taken. Um, and about 25% said that there was substantial, like that, for example, history of linguistics might have been an organizing principle in the course. So that means that there, there's a gap between what how graduate students represent their interests and how coursework is really responding to it. I also asked them about individual figures and their um, recognition of individual fig figures in linguistics. And a few figures uh, emerged as uh, ones that everybody recognized. Chomsky is right at the top of the list. And then a lot of uh, figures who are very recent, uh, people that are still alive and still teaching, people recognize their names. Uh, but then about uh, half of the people who were surveyed there did not recognize and had no information about, did not know who, for example, Humboldt, uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, Samuel Johnson, Otto Jesperson, Joseph Greenberg. He's was, you know, he died in 2000, so he's a recent figure. Michael Halliday, who's still alive, John Searle. Um, so that there are a number of both older and recent people who students of linguistics have never heard of. And then there was a large segment of people, um, uh, figures in the history of linguistics, who about 70% or more of the respondents didn't know anything about either. So what I took away from that survey is that although uh, uh, graduate students and upper division undergraduates haven't studied the history of linguistics, they're curious about it. They want to know something about it. And moreover, they want to know something about it that's earlier uh, than just the 20th century. My impression is that in recent linguistics, there's been, well, perhaps two simultaneous and, and conflicting trends. The sense of that 20th century linguistics or late 20th century linguistics represents a paradigm shift and renders what has gone before obsolete. And at the same time, the idea that what is being done in, for example, the Chomskyan program is a continuation of a centuries old trend of so-called Cartesian linguistics or the, the um, rationalist approach. Do you feel that the former aspect of that is new to our time, whereas in previous generations there was a much closer connection to the historical tradition? Yes, I think so. Um, I, I think you're right about that, that earlier linguistics felt itself to be part of a larger uh, discipline that was connected historically to many other disciplines and to its own history. Um, what's really particularly, I mean, I think you've put your finger on a really interesting paradox here, that Chomsky himself has led forward conceptualizing his own work as a revival of an older tradition. What's really interesting is that insofar as his work in that field is an attempt to get other people to be interested in looking back at historical antecedents to generative grammar, it really hasn't worked, which is to say historians of linguistics are famously very skeptical of most of his claims there. And other generativists, a few other generativists have taken up that thread of his work and developed it. But he himself continues to bring that forward at every possible occasion. Um, meanwhile, that other than the person who's central to, most central to generative linguistics, namely Chomsky himself, most other people treat it as if it's encapsulated in time and space, um, as if uh, it, uh, as you put it, it's just a 
uh, Chomsky's ideas are really have really changed the whole basic nature of this of, uh, study into language. Do you feel that that aspect of the modern generative program uh, harms its credibility in the eyes of uh, scholars of science in general? You know, Chomsky's very influenced by the fact that he teaches at MIT, right, where, uh, you know, the, the sort of scientific environment in which he works, well, f famously, the idea is that science kind of devours its own past and cuts itself off from its past. Uh, and in a, in a sense, he uh, rebels against that aspect of uh, his environment, although he very much allies his own work with a scientific um, stance. So he, you know, he, he identifies his work as part of the natural sciences, um, but at the same time wants to view it as a revival of, of views about language, which have been, you know, that have long roots back to the uh, 1700s, 1600s and 1700s. So that's a, uh, it's a very interesting kind of paradox. And nobody, I don't know anybody else in the field who really has taken up that particular stance and carried it forward. Do you feel that there are people who consider themselves to be working in the long-established philological tradition who think that uh, the generative claim on this history is in some sense a, a usurpation of their rightful place as the bearers of that tradition? Yes, very much. I mean, there's a lot of tension uh, uh, between the sort of Chomsky self-representation of his position in the field and the reading of his position taken by most historiographers of linguistics who deny or reject his claims uh, for uh, of being a kind of revival of a rationalist tradition. Um, there's not, unfortunately, there's not a lot of give and take between the two parties to this debate. Each side continues to reassert uh, its stance um, and doesn't seem to have influenced the other's position very much. Uh, so that Chomsky continues to co to connect his field to rationalist grammars from the 1660s, uh, and historiographers continue. Historiographers of linguistics and philologists continue to find that um, kind of incomprehensible. Um, it's a really interesting historical uh, puzzle, and uh, I think that students of linguistics need to be informed about uh, that, the discontinuity between those two views. I suppose a key question here is, do you feel that a better understanding of the history would help these sides reconcile their differences in some philosophical senses? Um, I'm not. I'm not entirely confident that reconciliation is really possible on that particular point. But I do think that students of linguistics need to study not only this particular issue, interesting sort of issue in the uh, the history of the discipline, but they need to be broadly informed about how language has been studied in many different contexts, in many different places and centuries. And I think that that kind of uh, the kind of self confidence and uh, sense of the larger endeavor that they're engaged in will help them make their way through what looks like an irreconcilable difference of opinions with respect to the particular point we're talking about. And I think your book is definitely a very valuable contribution in that area. I, for one, learned a lot about um, some relatively unfamiliar figures in the uh, history of thought about language. Are there any individuals that you personally were especially glad to be able to bring to the attention of a wider audience in this way? Oh, uh, that's a hard question, because, of course, each one of these people sort of filled my imagination for a series of weeks or months as I was researching them. And it's really hard to pick out anyone uh, that 
stands out. But, you know, here's something that I was talking with some students about recently, uh, and it actually came from my experience of finishing up the book. Uh, there are a number of people who are represented in the book who are still alive. And in one case I wrote to, there was a particular point of factual information that I, I couldn't um, I couldn't establish uh, without uh, contacting this person. And so I wrote asking, uh, presenting my factual question about the person's life. And uh, the response was very polite, uh, very gracious, but said uh, very directly, I don't know why you would be interested in facts about my life. Why not just study the scholarship and not the scholar, uh, him or herself? It, it, was a, it was a response that helped me rethink why I was committed to viewing, uh, again, as an, as an introduction to uh, the field by viewing uh, major fields in linguistics from the point of view of their lives and accomplishments. Um, because the writer was in effect saying, it doesn't matter where I came from or what I did or how I got here. What only mat what, uh, the only thing that matters is what I've done. I disagree uh, about that. And it, it, it was a provocation for me to rethink my reasons for my conviction contrary to that point of view. One particular case of it that came up, um, or one way in which I began to articulate to myself why I was committed to viewing the people within their context, uh, came out when I was thinking about uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt. Uh, so he was a major figure uh, in the history of linguistics who lived, let's see, what are his dates here, 1767 to 1835. And I, I really feel that knowing something about his life and circumstances helps us appreciate the work that he did. Uh, take, for example, the fact that he happened to have been born within the Prussian aristocracy. Uh, so his family was sort of on the one of that, you know, sort of middle tiers around uh, the uh, center of power uh, in Prussia in his time. And that fact helps, from my perspective, helps me understand the kinds of contributions that he made to the history of science in a number of different ways. For example, uh, because he was born in the aristocracy, he had the kind of cultural self-confidence to do a, a great deal of kind of critique of the typologies of language that were popularized by, for example, the Schlegels uh, in his own day. He also, uh, again, because of his arist aristocratic background, um, his brother, Alexander von Humboldt, was a famous geologist and adventurer and explorer in South America. And in the course of that exploration, his brother uh, collected some linguistic data of Native American languages and brought them back uh, to uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, which was something that had Humboldt been born in, say, Johann Gottfried Herder's position, he would never have had access to those materials. Humboldt also served, again, by virtue of his connections, his family connections as a diplomat to the Vatican. And the Vatican was a, had a vast library of grammars of so-called exotic languages. And again, Humboldt had access to those there. Also because Humboldt was born into that uh, family and those circumstances. He wrote a lot about uh, language, but he didn't write for purposes of publication. He didn't, never taught. And so a lot of his writings have this kind of labyrinthine. Uh, he was thinking out loud on paper to himself about the ideas that he was uncovering. And that made, um, he never had to explain himself to any other person. And so that gives his writings now, uh, they're very difficult to feel that you really got what he said because he wasn't really writing for you or for anyone. He was writing for himself. And I uh, sort of on basis of facts like that, I feel that understanding 
the circumstances of these particular figures helps me interpret the nature of their contributions to the history of linguistics. Well, this makes a lot of sense to me. I was interviewing recently um, Robert Balski in this series about his uh, biography of Zelig Harris, and in that he's very uh, strongly focused on, uh, as he puts it, the milieu in which Harris is working, um, not least because it influences enormously the kinds of questions that he thinks about uh, and the kinds of issues he is active about. Definitely. Of course, Barsky has an easier job here because those materials and those many of those people are still alive. And some of the uh, people that I'm included in this book, the sources that I have are <laughs> much more tenuous and a lot more speculation, a lot more opportunities for error creep in. So uh, that, that being the case, if there were a figure you were able to find out more about, if you could fancifully travel in time and uh, ask those who knew a particular person some detail, uh, what sort of thing or about whom uh, springs to mind as, as someone you would like to have those questions answered about? Oh, so if I could go to the party, too, and meet these people uh, uh, firsthand. Yeah, let's see. Maybe King Sejong. Uh, King Sejong was a monarch uh, in Korea, and let's see, his dates are, King Sejong lived between 1397 and 1450, uh, and he's mostly remembered in history as a sort of very progressive era uh, reformist uh, in Korean history. Uh, but he also created an orthography for the Korean language, which is a, really a just work of genius. Uh, it's unusual as an uh, orthography because we know we're pretty sure that he created it perhaps with some help and uh, he certainly had studied the orthographies of several different languages uh, as he was creating it um, but I you know I would love to talk to him about his actual act of creation and the ways in which he developed insight into the language such that he was able to create this very elaborate and sensitive a featural analysis of both the consonants and the vowels of Korean um, uh, in such a way as the, the orthography shows kind of insight into the delicate properties of the language, uh, which is a very sophisticated accomplishment, especially for someone who's busy running a country. I suppose the question arises in, in cases such as his and also a couple of the, uh, the great uh, historical grammarians of uh, to what extent the work attributed to them is, is actually theirs. Taking that personal angle, um, do you feel that makes a difference in the way we interpret these um, findings? Yes, definitely. Um, in a lot of cases, we don't really know what the connection between the person uh, and the uh, product actually is. To take the first uh, figure treated in the book, Panini, we don't know really anything about his life whatsoever. Uh, uh, so the best we can do there is try to understand the context in which he lived. Uh, which includes sort of like anthropological, historical, archaeological uh, evidence. But the person himself uh, is completely opaque uh, to us. And that does give a different relationship between the work uh, and the person. Um, and so the book is full of the, the people and their work sort of orbit around each other in various different ways, with the orbit getting tighter and tighter as, that, uh, as we approach the present day. Yeah, with reference to Panini, you make the point that um, Whitney, who uh, also rates an entry as, as one of your 50 thinkers, uh, was very sceptical about uh, the work of Panini as to whether it was what it claimed to be, namely the grammar of an actual 
language. Do you think that's that's a sort of ad hominem response? Uh, I, well, I don't think it was ad hominem. I, I think it was against the interpretation. Whitney doubted that Panini, uh, that the language that Panini was describing was an actual human language. And he was certainly wrong about that. Of course, Whitney was a somewhat of a difficult person to get along with and had feuds ongoing with a lot of different people during his lifetime. He was a controversial uh, figure. So it doesn't stand out as one of the, as one of uh, Whitney's most famous uh, feuds. I was going to say, would you be concerned that this um, this party is going to de- degenerate into some kind of riot as people get to know another? Well, um, I-, I would hope not. But, but there were some there were some people who, who whose attitudes, you know, you probably wouldn't want to edit out of the party. Turning again to the uh, the present day, uh, you acknowledge that one area in which the assembled company isn't particularly diverse is gender. Do you have any thoughts as to why that is? Well, I think all the reasons that have made uh, the contribution of women to intellectual endeavors impoverished over the years certainly function in linguistics as well. Um, uh, they probably made lots of contributions, but their names weren't attached to it or they weren't given education sufficient to do original work. That seems to be changing now, and I applaud it, as does everyone. Um, but it didn't. I didn't feel that I could distort the, the guest list, as it were, to represent people who should have been there but who didn't have the chance to be there. I can only hope that that'll be different in the future. Indeed, yes. Were there any names who um, might have, in that sense, uh, cried out for for inclusion, for representative perspective? Perhaps, I mean, it occurs to me that uh, if you were to assemble a list of 50 greatest mathematicians or most influential mathematicians in history, uh, well, it's not really for me to say whether uh, how many of them would be women, but there would definitely be women who would be contending for a place on the list. Yeah, that's good to hear. Uh, I think that Julia Falk's work in this area has been really helpful. Uh, uh, she's uh, studied, uh, you know, in particular has looked at the history of American linguistics and brought forth the names and contributions of women uh, in the field in a work that is particularly focused on women's contributions to linguistics uh, in the U.S. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that kind of work is a good argument uh, for uh, the fact that there certainly are women who have contributed. Uh, the question is whether they had the opportunities and you know had to have the chance to contribute at a high enough level. I'm inter- interested to hear your view on um, the point made by a female colleague of mine um, who expressed the view that the field of linguistics nowadays, although there are very many very successful women um, working in it, uh, is in some sense still dominated by forceful and especially argumentative men. Uh, that's probably true, although some argumentative women are uh, arising and, you know, making their voices heard as well, and uh, that's all for the better. The, argu- but, the, the sort of t- tendency to be argumentative, of course, is a way, uh, that's a technique of getting your voice heard um, that's not unique in linguistics by any means. Do, do you feel it's... Um, an unusually disputatious field. This is something I sometimes feel about linguistics, mm. and what, what you say about the history tends to um, anecdotally back up that point, although, of course, I don't have a basis for comparison with other uh, areas of thought. Yeah, unfortunately, I've been trained pretty much uh, solely in linguistics and don't feel that I can make a judgment about that, except that my husband is a, uh, a scholar of English, and his field is pretty much you know, suffused with argumentation as well.
Well, I suppose that's reassuring in its way. Turning to the um, names you mentioned earlier when talking about the uh, the lack of or the the lack of um, focus on history among students of linguistics or in linguistics uh, courses, uh, it struck me that some of those are very much seem to be very much more central and very much more um, cited than others. Mm. Um, among the among the current names, uh, it struck me Halliday is one about whom I seem to hear very little, or indeed know very little, or knew very little prior to reading your biography of him. Well, Chris, that actually surprises me. I when I started reading about Halliday, I realized that I had gone all the way through graduate school without having ever heard his name, but that his sort of recognition in many parts of the world is extremely high. It just hasn't really penetrated here in the U.S. You were trained in the U.K., right? Uh, and still have not, you you'd not, had not studied his work, is that right? That's, that's essentially true, yes. Well, that's really surprising to me. Australia and parts of uh, East Asia, um, his name is really well known. Um, he his uh, Halliday's point of view is kind of antithetical to that of Chomsky's on many different levels. Um, that probably adds to his or sort of you know adds to his unknownness uh, over here. Um, although schools of education, a lot of in the U.S., a lot of schools of education have used his uh, grammatical categories and analytic stances to look at educational, linguistic educational issues. And so insofar as he has a position over here, it's probably in that, uh, in those kinds of fields. My, my general um, sense, however, is that the study of the history of linguistics is much uh, more developed in Europe uh, than it is in the U.S. So that a lot of the uh, printing presses, professional organizations, publishing journals most of that is uh, located in europe and uh, not in the us yes i suspect that that um, difference in focus is is uh, true do you feel that's because of the uh, the centrality of the um late 20th century developments in linguistics to the to the way the field is perceived in the us yes probably so and in fact because chomsky's personal position uh, is to feel that his own work is connected to the past, but not to develop it much beyond that, nor apparently to encourage other people to do that as well. We have this interesting situation in the U.S. where uh, people are trained in linguistics, but the the past, it's bizarre, it's, it's incrementally getting shorter as time goes on. So, for example, when I was in graduate school in the 1980s, uh, we were asked to read stuff which was considered very early from the 1960s and 1970s. And now graduate students generally don't read anything that was published in the 1980s because that was that's deemed too old-fashioned. So, you know, bizarrely, it's like the, the, the story of the discipline gets shorter and shorter as the years pass, uh, at least here in the U.S. Yes, it's a trend I've noticed even in, for example, psycholinguistics, where there seems to be this, this finding that because people don't read the literature, certain things get discovered on a cyclical basis, maybe every 30 years or so, because nobody realised that anybody looked at that before. Do you feel that's a danger? Yes, that's a, that's a serious danger. It also just impoverishes, impoverishes people's understanding of what they're doing, not, which is not to say that you can dip into earlier eras and like find solutions to current problems that have already uh, been created. But your sense of what it, what it is to what it means to study language and all the ways that it has been studied 
we need as much creativity and openness as possible in order to carry this endeavor further into the 21st century. And I think it's, uh, it's unnecessarily constraining to feel that the only kind of background you have are the ideas and thoughts of people in the last few decades. Do you find yourself apostrophizing um, these past figures and uh, saying, you know, you should be living in this hour? It would be helpful to know what certain previous thinkers would make of some of the issues that are being discussed. Right. They'd be very shocked. Uh, but um, some really interesting conversations could take place at this party. For example, Franz Bopp. Uh, I can imagine him talking with Joseph Greenberg about Greenberg's idea of the uh, Eurasiatic language family, sort of huge, expansive historical family that in which he placed Greenberg placed all of the Indo-European languages and way, way more. And Franz Bopp, who was kind of the technician of uh, the reconstruction of the Indo-European language family, following skeptically, but at probably amazedly, some of the ways in which Greenberg had proposed uh, the reconstruction of that massive family. Um, I think there would be mutual shock uh, um, on both sides, and I would, I'd love to be part of such a conversation. It does feel in some ways as though it's a field in which there's been this sort of ebb and flow philosophically, but sometimes I find myself doubting whether there's been real progress. Mm. Yeah, certainly there in work on linguistic historiography, people have attempted to look at sort of massive trends over decades and over centuries. That kind of work is helpful and interesting and kind of uh, uh, stimulating uh, to read about. But you have to always be very careful uh, to make sure that it doesn't diminish, diminish or overlook the individual peculiarities of particular fields or sort of overrepresent the similarities across them. Because um, Vivian Law, um, uh, one of my uh, sort of models for what it means to be to study the his, historiography, historiography of linguistics, Vivian Law always uh, pointed out uh, that the, um, the important sort of intellectual skill that's at the base of the historiography of linguistics is the capacity to appreciate and understand how things can be different in different contexts, which is a very high intellectual goal and uh, something that if it can be achieved within this field would be very advantageous. So she argued that uh, it's important that you can get important training in what it means to understand something that is deeply different from yourself by studying how language study uh, has been carried out differently in different fields. Um, so when you look at macroscopic ideas about, for example, Chomsky's idea about Chomsky's idea about rationalism and empiricism, um, you have to be careful to make sure that you're doing justice to the idiosyncratic differences between rationalism in the 1660s and rationalism in the late 20th century. So you take the position that uh, the nuances of these. Um of, of these differences could in, materially influence the way in which certain um, currents of thought are developed. Definitely. And moreover, that uh, paying attention to those nuances helps train us into understanding what it means to be different, what it means to have a different set of values, a different set of experiences, a different sociopolitical context in which your work takes place. And that's a skill that's really essential for uh, a lot of work uh, in our century. It's interesting because on the surface that almost looks as though it's going to oppose a, well, strictly rationalist or, or 
scientist viewpoint uh, of the idea that there is, there is some uh, absolute truth to which, towards which we're striving and which will be eventually reached by whatever means. Uh, this suggests that there may be different or very different routes and possibly even different destinations according to the way we approach the field. Or is that a misrepresentation? Well, I think you have to um, at, at least um, expect that that might be true. Um, it's not clear that it's true. And especially with respect to the subject matter here, namely human language, um, is there reason to believe that that has been really different from age to age as people experience of using language to communicate, to think, to experience the world? Has that, is there reason to believe that that's really different from age to age? I mean, probably not there. And so at least that, if that is stable, that allows us to look at different understandings of those experiences and how they differ, how the understanding differs from age to age. To pick up a name whose work was um, reasonably unknown to me and whose name I probably can't even pronounce, probably Sibawahi. Yeah, Sibawahi, yeah. Well, in the field of study of Arabic, he's the most prominent, you know, he's a very prominent figure. Uh, and I, uh, part of the, I mean, one of the criteria I used for selection for inclusion in the book is I wanted to represent uh, well, I didn't. I didn't want it to make it entirely sort of the Western grammatical tradition. In a couple of places, I could, for example, including Panini, was easy because he did make a huge and continues to make a huge impact on Western linguistics. In the case of Sibwahi, uh, there's a little bit of uh, you know, a certain ad admiration for his personal accomplishments there, but I can't say that his uh, analysis has been a key contributor to Western grammatical tradition. But it seemed unnecessarily false to limit uh, the edges of the, you know, sort of the, the outside content of the book strictly to sort of Euro-American uh, linguistics. Um, so I was able to include some figures who are important in their own right, even though they're outside that tradition. Do you get an impression as to why it is that certain figures from outside the tradition are influential uh, within that tradition, whereas some figures have been um, ostensibly less influential or perhaps neglected by that yeah. um, kind of thought? Well, Panini is very important in Western linguistics because of the uh, British imperialism. They they discovered Panini around the time that they discovered the the, the role of Sanskrit uh, in the Indo-European language family. So the study of Panini gave people access to the study of Sanskrit, which catalyzed discovery of the Indo-European language family. And also Panini's style of analysis was very, was conducive or, you know, became attractive to people in various different eras as Western linguistics developed. And he certainly took that particular style of sort of maximally succinct uh, admission of high abstraction in order to permit generalization across masses of uh, data. He pushed that so far uh, beyond the way it was practiced before um, that that gave, you know, set him up as a model for what it means to do abstract analysis of language. And people have drawn on that model and been inspired on that model in several instances since then, notably uh, Leonard Bloomfield and also the current generative theory uh, finds that attractive as well. So he was a, an outsider who has been made an insider um, because of the particular nature of his contribution. King Sejong, on the other hand, uh, 
was massively original uh, sort of analysis of his own language, but that hasn't had very many ramifications for the study of language in other contexts, and so he's less well-known. There's, I guess, also the sense that certain um, certain discoveries are, if you like, rediscovered by a tradition at a particularly uh, apposite time where they uh, their the contribution can be fully appreciated and can, can be influential. Yes, I think that there's some examples of that from the history of lexicography, too. Um, so if you look at uh, sort of attitudes towards prescriptivism, uh, in uh, dictionary making, you can see a range of positions uh, that has continued to evolve uh, and some recognition looking back at, for example, James Murray, who seems like shockingly modern uh, in his attitude towards prescriptivism. Um, I love the uh, famous uh, statement that he made about when someone was asking him about whether something should or shouldn't, or sort of what was the correct form of this word. And he said, some people wear collars that stand up, some people wear collars that lie down, why shouldn't they? In other words, he dis he dissociated himself from the role of the, dis the arbiter of correctness uh, and decided instead that his work was to describe and collect the biographies of individual words. Now, that wasn't so far, so far in the past, uh, but still it contrasts with many people's uh, ideas about what's correct and, and how correctness needs to be policed in a language. And presumably comes to influence very strongly what, what um, people take to be the appropriate way to practice lexicography. Right, right. But what's interesting that uh, probably according to him, there also like there are a range of ways to pronounce a word like either, either. There are probably a range of ways to do lexicography as well. Yes, I suppose it would be unfair to, uh, to take a position that you know, we prescribe that the non-prescriptive way is the way forward. Right. Um, <laughs> You, I mean, you mentioned uh, Samuel Johnson also as a uh, as an influential figure, but somebody who's adopting a very uh, a very different stance, or has taken to be adopting a very different stance. Definitely, yeah, he's a fabulous, interesting figure. Um, I don't know some of these uh, figures. I just uh, became very attached to personally and kept reading about, and he was one of them. The kind of life that he lived and the experience that he, that he had, which he had, were just really so remarkable. Has the experience of writing these uh, short biographies and, and researching them uh, inspired you to pursue any particular threads to to follow up any of these lives? Well, I'm, I'm currently working on an editing of volume, a collection of criticism on Roman Jakobson, who is a character who is kind of near to my own context because he was one of the animating spirits behind the creation of the department in which I work at Boston College. Uh, his uh, papers are on deposit at the MIT library where I have ready access to them. And his influence pervades and still pervades uh, some aspects of the linguistic scene here in Boston. Plus he's just a really, just a totally remarkable uh, person and a figure who spread the views of Europe here, sort of brought European structuralism to the United States uh, and uh, worked in many fields very broadly. And so I'm really looking forward uh, to in the next year where I'm on sabbatical, uh, going more deeply into his contributions. So uh, apart from the work on Jacobson, what does the immediate future hold for you as research-wise? Well, actually, I'm going to do be doing a big project in psycholinguistics, not having to do with the history of linguistics at all in Japan uh, this summer. Um, 
but when I return, um, I'm going to be working on the Jakobsen uh, book and probably looking more into the local uh, scene here in Boston. I recently taught a course on the history of ling uh, linguistics here at Boston College, and as a kind of class project, I, I, the class's attention turned to the study of linguistics in New England. Um, so we did some like small collaborative work on Noah Webster, uh, on Hans Kurath, who is the author of the Linguistic Atlas, or one of the editors of the Linguistic Atlas of uh, New England, um, and John Eliot, who is a missionary uh, grammarian from the 1600s. And so I, I think I'd like to do some research here on the early work in linguistics um, in New England. It's fascinating to know that the, uh, the what's the center of modern linguistics has been so influential going back such a long time. Right. Of course, here in the U.S., we don't have much of a history at all compared to, for example, Europe, uh, much less East Asia. Uh, but still, it's true that uh, the eastern part of New England here has been a, a really driving force in the history of linguistics uh, since at least the 1600s. And a, a collaborative project I was I mentioned I mentioned to you will bring that up to the present day, including uh, William Dwight Whitney. He was a Connecticut, Massachusetts person, but uh, taught in Connecticut, uh, and of course Chomsky. It'll be fascinating to know not only how that history has unfolded, but of course to know how it's going to continue. But our time here is up, so I'll uh, conclude by saying, Margaret Thomas, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. I've been talking to Margaret Thomas about her book, 50 Key Thinkers on Language and Linguistics. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.